Good morning, friends. It is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, we are officially living in Colorado now, so this is a crazy thing. And, and I guess it's official. I mean, the, the name is on the back of this bulletin thing, so uh, you're stuck with us now. We are not doing that drive again, okay? We're just not doing it. But speaking of, we made the drive over the last two or three days to get to you guys from L.A. And that last stretch from Grand Junction to this place, if you don't believe in God after making that drive, something is wrong with you. I mean, if you lived maybe, I don't know, say Texas or something, you could, you could think, God, yeah, there's no God. This is all a cosmic accident. There is nothing good here. But here in Colorado, you don't have that excuse. You'd be a fool to say there wasn't a master creator. So we are delighted to be with you guys. We are anxious to get to know and meet many of you that we haven't yet. Uh, we've got some exciting things coming up at West Bowls in the next couple of weeks and months. Next week, we'll start off a, a four-week series that I'm super excited about that will hopefully challenge you and encourage you in different ways. We've got a neat uh, fall kickoff to start our new fall semester off, and then we'll do a series on Jesus after that. So we're really excited. We want you to come back quick from summer vacation, whatever you're doing over the next month or so. Make sure you're back on Sundays. We want you to be here and a part of what, what's, what God's doing in this place. But before we get there, we've got a special guest today, and I'm excited to introduce him uh, to you today. I got to hear him in the early service this morning. It's an incredible story. Jerry is a man that many of you might have heard before or seen before. He's got a great voice. He's actually the voice of the Nuggets for many years, and now he's the voice of the Rockies. Big sports nut. Uh, I was wearing purple, he pointed out, in, in honor of the Rockies. I, I wasn't even aware of that. But uh, it's just Rocky Sunday. Someone was actually wearing a Rockies jersey. Is she here? Yes, she's rocking it out, speaking of. So uh, we're excited about that, Jerry. But just in addition to his great voice, he's got a great family. Uh, his wife, Diane, daughter, Maggie, son, Ryan. A great group of people. They lived here in Littleton for a long, long time. This is home. They know West Bowles well. They love this church. We're excited to hear. Because in addition to his great voice, his great family, he's got a great story. And it's an incredible testimony to a great God. And I'm anxious for you to hear all about it. So, Jerry, come on up and bless us with those words. Could you imagine if uh, your pastor and I did the Rockies games together? The Tom and Jerry show, 162 times a year. Huh? Um, before I get started, uh, I want to tell a little story. Um, I did the, the Nuggets for 18 years, now my fifth year doing the Rockies, and I looked back the other day and just counted the wins and losses when I was with the Nuggets. And in 18 years, the Nuggets over that time were 117 games below 500. I got to the Rockies, we finished last place the last two years in our division, and we have the third worst record in Major League Baseball right now. So my guess is, I'm not sure about this, but my hunch is I was not asked to come about, talk about the Nuggets or the Rockies today. Am I right about that? The pastor's over here shaking his head like, yes. I gotta tell you a story, I told this story in the first service, and I've told it for many years now. It, to me, it's still hilarious, but the 1997-98 NBA season, with the Nuggets. Anybody remember that year, by the way? We're trying to forget that year. That was the year the, the Nuggets went 11 and 71. 82 game schedule, 11 wins, 71 losses. And at one point that year, we were 5 and 59. So we rallied to win 11 games. The worst, the worst record in NBA history was uh, nine wins, and we surpassed that by two. In the middle of that season, 
uh, I was getting ready on Saturday night to speak at a church on Sunday morning, and my daughter, who's now 21, was five or six years old at that point, Maggie, and some of you know, know her, and uh, she's asked me about the church I'm going to speak at the next morning, and who, who arranged it, who'd you talk to, how many people are going to be there, and then I, I told her all that, and she said, well, uh, what are you going to talk about, Dad? And I said, well, I'm going to talk about the plane crash that I survived, which I'll talk about today, and she knew all about that, and I said, I'm going to give my testimony to the church, and, and she was okay with that, and then she looked at me again, and she says, Dad, are you going to talk about the nuggets at all? And I said, no, probably not. And she said, she looked at me in the eye, and she said, Dad, it's a good thing you were in a plane crash, because nobody wants to hear about the nuggets. <laughs> oh, I just think that is hilarious. I've told that story so many times, and every time I say it, I laugh again. That's how bad it was. My own daughter thought it was, it was good I was in a plane crash, where people died around me, so I wouldn't have to talk about my employer. That's how, that's how bad it was. Um, actually, the last, I think, six years I did the Nuggets. I had a winning record and finished actually very good. Went to conference finals one year, my last year doing it. And uh, hopefully there are better days ahead for the Rockies as well. A lot of injuries, but hopefully that gets better starting today. And uh, we'll have a little bit better second half. But the truth is I was not asked to come and talk about the Rockies or the Nuggets, but about something more important, at least in my mind, and, and that is my becoming a Christian. And I want to tell you that story because from point A to point B is pretty crazy for me. And everybody has, I know, their own plane crash. My wife says that all the time. And looking across this room, there are a lot of people here, there are plane crashes all across this room. And many of you have gone through something similar to what I have, gone from point A to point B. For, in my particular case, it was no spiritual foundation whatsoever to now becoming a Christian. And I want to fill in the blank for you. July July 19, 1989, so we're coming up on 25 years of the crash United Airlines Flight 232 in Sioux City, Iowa. In fact, this coming Saturday is that 25th anniversary, and my family and I are actually going back to Sioux City. They're doing a reunion uh, service on Saturday and on Sunday, and we're going to be part of that, and I'm speaking, and Captain Haynes, who survived our crash as well, is going to speak. So we've got a very emotional weekend coming up uh, this weekend for 25 years, but hopefully we can kind of close that chapter and move on. We know as survivors and family members of people who died in that crash, and there were 112 people who died, that it'll never go away. I mean, it's a wound that will never completely heal, but we're hoping after 25 years, starting on on Friday night at midnight, that maybe we can kind of put some behind us. Uh, July 19, 1989, I was working as a freelance broadcaster. I did not have a team that I was doing games for then. I was a freelancer, but I was on ESPN doing uh, college football and basketball that spring, just sort of on a part-time basis. But my main duties were in Denver as a deputy commissioner of the Continental Basketball Association. Back then, the office was based here in Denver, and that was the uh, minor league system for the NBA. And I was second in command, basically. Jay Ramsdale had hired me three months before the plane crash to come to Denver to kind of be his right-hand man. Jay and I were very good friends, known each other a long time, and we moved to Denver in the spring of 1989. Three months later, Jay and I are heading to Stapleton Airport, the old airport here, to catch a flight from Denver to Chicago. We're going to make a connection in Chicago, go on to Columbus, Ohio. Next day in Columbus was our CBA draft, our college draft. We're going to draft our players the next day. Jay and I got to the airport about 6 in the morning for a 7 a.m. flight and found out that our flight was canceled. So we stood in line at a ticket counter at Stapleton, finally got to a ticket counter, and the agent told us that we had both been put on automatically standby status for the next four flights to Chicago. Standby means those planes are full, but if somebody doesn't show up at a certain time and you have priority, you can take that seat. Finally, the fourth standby flight. Now, it's a fifth one overall, counting the one we got bumped off of, turns out to be United Airlines Flight 232 that crashes in Sioux City. 
Shane and I were not supposed to be on that plane. We were supposed to take off hours before we actually did. Now, I've got to tell you guys, in the almost 25 years subsequent to the event, there have been an amazing number of people who have told me they were supposed to be on that plane with us. But for some reason, these people didn't get on. They, they changed plans or they canceled whatever. If everybody was telling the truth, we'd have 9,000 people aboard this aircraft. It is amazing. My father used to say, that's the most overbooked flight in aviation history right there because he had people telling him the same thing. It was actually the opposite for Jay and I. We were not supposed to be on that plane. We got the last two seats literally aboard the aircraft. They called my name. I got a ticket in row 23. They called Jay's name. He got a ticket in row 30. 37 uh, rows in a DC-10. We had 296 people aboard. We were completely full, and Jay and I got the last two seats. Two-hour flight to Chicago. We took off for Chicago. Perfect conditions. No expected turbulence whatsoever. About an hour into the flight, it turned out that the number two engine in this particular plane, this DC-10, had a crack, had a defect in the core of metal that held the fan blades together. That defect kept growing over the years, finally exploded in flight on flight 232. Caused a lot of damage to the back of the plane, took out hydraulic system, and we tried to make an emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa. With so little control of the plane that the cockpit crew just said they had, they had no chance really to land the plane safely. A normal DC-10 landing is 120 to 130 miles an hour when you touch the ground. We hit at 255 miles an hour. They could not slow the plane down. They couldn't uh, correct the tilt that the plane kept wanting to bank off to the right with. The plane just kept wanting to bank to the right. There was so much damage on the right side of the plane in the back causing drag. The plane in its own, every time we got a heading through Sioux City, would veer off to the right. They have to come back and line up again. We did that five times. It took us 45 minutes. So you put all those things together. You've got a 19-degree angle. The plane's coming in. We're dropping three times faster. Airspeed's twice what it should have been, and, and you've got disaster, and that's what happened. We hit the ground, and immediately inside the plane, complete chaos, bodies, debris, smoke, fire. We hit the ground, slid about 1,400 feet, flipped over, kind of cartwheeled end to end, and the plane broke into pieces. And that's where, if you've ever seen the videotape, uh, that's where it picks up. You'll see the plane flip over and break into all these pieces. And with the 25th anniversary coming up here on Saturday, you, if you're watching the news, I'm sure you're going to see it again here sometime this week, especially on Saturday. The result was that 112 people died, 184 of us survived. One of the ones who didn't make it was my, my good friend and travel companion, Jay Ramsdale, sitting seven rows back of me. As well, where I was sitting, everybody, crazy sound, died around me. There's a guy sitting next to me. He's dead when we came to a stop. His wife, they, they were coming off their honeymoon. They'd come back from Hawaii, and they were headed to Chicago through Denver. She's dead. The little boy in front of me died. The, the woman across the aisle from me died. The guy behind me died. I'm in the, in the middle of a circle of people that died in that crash, and I came out without any serious injuries. I remember this happening so distinctly. I mentioned this in the first service. I'm driving over here, just right on bowls before I came in, and I just thought about this, and it seems so incredibly vivid to me still. About two weeks after the crash, we invited a trauma counselor to come to our office to speak to us as a group because we knew Jay had uh, lost his life and we were trying to deal with that. And um, this trauma counselor came in and he said, um, can I just talk to you as a group for about 30 minutes? We said, yeah, sure. So we sat down in a little conference room we had over in Cherry Creek area at our office building, and he spoke to us for about 30 minutes. And to be honest, I don't remember a single thing that he said there, but I'll never forget this. He took me aside and said, Jerry, I just want to warn you about what's going to happen to you next. This took about five minutes. He sat down in my office, and it's so vivid to me still. I can just see him sitting here. He said, Jerry, I want to warn you about what's going to happen to you next. I want to warn you about post-trauma stress. 
and I'd never heard that term before. I've heard it many times since that time. Post-trauma stress, he said, because of the circumstance you were in, because of what you went through, he said to me, I can identify four stages of post-trauma stress you will now go through. Stage one is going to be survivor's guilt. You're going to feel guilty because people around you did not uh, survive the crash. You're going to hit anger. You're going to have listlessness, where he said things used to mean something to you, like your spiritual convictions, which I didn't have any at that point, but your job and your family, they won't mean that much to you anymore. And stage four is going to be depression. He said 99% of the people who came out of your crash alive will suffer these four symptoms of post-trauma stress, but just know they're a natural consequence of what you went through, and you can work through them. Well, that guy stood up and walked out of my office, and I said to myself, the things that he just said happened to other people. They don't happen to me. Are you kidding me? Jerry Schimmel, tough Midwestern born and raised guys, every time you got knocked down, well, you pick yourself back up. You got a problem, you find the solution to it, execute that solution. You don't need a lot of help. You certainly don't get depressed. I was an all-American baseball player in college. I worked my way through law school. that, That stuff happens to weak people. I'll be that 1% he's talking about. Guys, absolutely no doubt in my mind. I brushed him off just like that with a wave of my hand. But as the the days turned into weeks and weeks and the months after that crash, all the things he said would happen to me did. They happened just like he said they would. The survivor's guilt came. I I never saw it come. It hit me like a ton of bricks. The the anger came. The listlessness came. The depression came. And for a period of 10 months after that plane crash, I went on a downward spiral in my life that I just couldn't seem to stop. My life was, the way I look at it now, a jigsaw puzzle that had been broken up into pieces and put back in the box when I put the pieces back on the table and tried to put them together, they just didn't fit again. I just couldn't quite figure out what the heck was happening to me. Uh, my marriage, I've been married four years to, a lot of people here know my wife, Diane. We had a beautiful marriage, and it was falling apart. I quit my job. I knew I was in depression, and I thought, what in the heck has happened to me in this short amount of time? Ten months the day after the crash, 10-month anniversary of, of Flight 232, I sat down in a chair with this little apartment in Denver, and I sat down in this chair, Diane wasn't around, and I just, I sat down and I realized for the first time in my life, I was 29 years old at the time of the crash, I was now 30, that for the first time in 30 years, I hadn't been knocked down, and I could not pick myself back up. I, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't do it on my own anymore. And I just closed my eyes, and, and again, absolutely no spiritual foundation whatsoever, but I closed my eyes, and I, I just asked God to come into my life. Not, not a specific prayer to save my marriage or come out of depression or get a new job. It was, God, just give me some kind of relief here, some kind of reprieve from this crash, because I can't do this anymore. And when I said that, something came over me. It wasn't a, it wasn't a physical thing, it, but it was, it was this overwhelming feeling of contentment that said to me, because of what I had just done, the ally I just invited in my life, that eventually, not that moment or the next day or the next week, but eventually I knew I was going to win every single battle. Not because it was me, but because of the ally I had to fight that battle with me. And that was the beginning for me. Um, I... Uh, I, I remember my wife coming home that night, and I didn't say anything to her at all. We weren't, we weren't even talking at that point. And, and by the way, uh, this is free advice for you, by the way. If you're having trouble in your marriage, not talking gets you nowhere. Okay, that's free advice. If you go to counsel, they'll charge 150 bucks for that. You got that for free right here. We weren't talking, and so uh, you know, I didn't say anything to her. I thought, you know, let me go to sleep and see how this feels in the morning. I get up on Saturday morning. I'm feeling great. Diane gets up a little later, and, and I, I go tell her what happened, and I think she was a little skeptical, to be honest with you, but I was feeling great at that point. And uh, I said to my wife, I said, I, I, I need some advice. What do I do? What, I'm feeling great. Something's happened to me. What do I do? 
Diane and I dated for almost five years before we got married. We'd been married 28 years, we'd be married 29 next month, so we'd known each other about 35 years. In the 35 years I've known Diane, this might be the best piece of advice she has ever given me. She said to me when I asked that question, she said, well, I'm no expert, but it might not be a bad idea to start reading the Bible. <laughs> not, not bad advice for anybody, huh? So I picked up this book, and we had one in, in the apartment, and uh, I'm going to be embarrassed when I say this. I had never opened this book before. I would never opened a Bible. I never had one in my hand for 30 years. I had seen some Bible quotes. I had seen John 3.16 on the mall or in a football game or something. I would never opened this book and read it. So I started doing that, and Diane kind of helped me to, to start in certain places. And, and I realized after reading this book that if I wanted to be like her, because she was a beautiful Christian woman from the day I met her, that if I wanted my sins forgiven and my spot in heaven secured, I had one more big decision to make. And so I started reading this book, and two, two passages hit me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will never die but have eternal life. John 3, 16. And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 really hit me over the head. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, but a gift from God, and not by works, lest no man boast. I was asking myself a question for 10 months after that plane crash, and that was, if I had died in that crash, like everybody around me, like the guy here and the boy in front of me and the woman across the aisle and Jay, all these, if I had died like those people, where would I be today? And I thought for 10 months... I had the answer. I thought I'd be in heaven. I thought I'd, I, I, I'd be in heaven for this reason, because I had done a lot of really cool deeds in my life. Works had got me. I had impressed God so much that he was going to allow me to live with him. I, I didn't make a lot of money, but I gave some away. I worked with handicapped kids. I, I was true to my wife. I thought, man, I have earned my way into heaven. I will get there because of works. When I read this book, and especially those two passages, I realized I was all wrong. There's nothing you can do. There's never enough you can do to get yourself into heaven. God said it's not through works. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. I sat down a couple weeks later after reading this book in, in that same chair, and I said something like a sinner's prayer. Diane was not there again. I just told God that I believed that Jesus was his son, that he was sent here to die for us. And I believe that at that moment, I wanted to open up my heart and let Jesus take residence there. I wanted my sins forgiven. I wanted my spot in heaven secured. And I, and I kind of said it like that. It took me about 10 or 15 seconds. And you know what, guys? It's the greatest thing I've ever done. It's the most important decision I've ever made, and I have never looked back. Are you kidding me? You guys, most of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. Are you kidding me? To have every sin you ever committed, every sin you ever will, wipe clean? God says, I'll cast that sin as far as the east is from the west. Are you kidding me? What an amazing way to live, to have your spot in heaven secured, to know exactly where you're going when you leave this earth, you're going right to heaven. What an amazing way to live. And better yet, someday, what an amazing way to die. Um, one of the things that uh, I, I love to do now is just pick up this book and, and read about Jesus in his life, those three years on earth. And one of my favorite passages is uh, uh, Luke 22, where Jesus prays in the Mount of Olives. He says... Father, if you're willing, this is right before he gets arrested and crucified. Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will be yours be done. And then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed even earnestly, more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Can you imagine the agony Jesus was in right there? And how about that prayer to his father? He's saying, Father God, 
if you can take this cup from me, if you can take this, this pain that I'm going to endure away from me, that would be great. But if it's not your will, then, then I'll go along with it. Can you imagine that prayer? God is saying to him, but my son, you need to know that, that they're going to take you to the whipping post first, and they're going to whip you until you're almost dead, and they're going to take you away and then crucify you. And what does Jesus do? He says, all right, I'll do that. I'll go along with that. But my son, you need to know that the, the apostles that have sworn their allegiance to you will scatter once you're arrested. And you know what Jesus says? He says, I know, Father. I'll do it anyway. And God says to him, you know what? Your earthly mother Mary is going to watch all this. She's going to be in emotional agony for the next two days. And Jesus says, I know. I'll do it anyway. And God says, you need to know that when they crucify you, your own weight will kill you. You'll suffocate yourself on a cross. It's an agonizing death. And Jesus says, I know. I'll do it anyway. And he did. And he died. For while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. I have a good friend. I think he's in the, the crowd here today. He's a teacher at Columbine High School, teaches sociology, and he invites me to, to speak to his group uh, every semester uh, at Columbine High School. And I sat in part of a class that he has. And one thing he said the last time I was there was really interesting to me. He said, the most important decision you're going to make in your life with regard to happiness is who you choose as your spouse. And I thought about that, and he had a lot of research behind it, and I thought about that, and that is, that is a great point. The most important decision you'll make in terms of happiness is who you pick to marry. I think that's very, very true. I know now, after becoming a Christian, the most important thing you can do for your eternal life is make a decision for Jesus Christ. You might think your biggest challenge right now is your marriage. You might think your biggest challenge right now is your health. You might think your biggest challenge right now are your kids. You might think your biggest challenge right now is your job or your career or your lack of a job. That's not your biggest challenge. Your biggest challenge in your life is, is believing the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will never die but have eternal life. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves but a gift from God, and not by works, lest no man boast. If you, if you hear nothing else from me this morning, I want you to hear this. This is not my, my take on things. This is not my interpretation of the gospel. This is not my story. Guys, this is God. God says this. It's right here in his book, black and white. He says the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. So if you're not going to listen to me this morning, please listen to him. And I can tell you exactly what he's telling you. He's saying, I love you, all of you. I love you so much I gave you my son. I let my son be, be tortured and murdered. I let him die so you can live forever. In eternity, he says, with me in a place so incredible you can't even fathom it. One way, guys, and one way only, and it's through Jesus Christ. If you've not made that decision yet for Christ, I urge you to do it. Don't be like me. Don't linger for 30 years and wonder where you're going to be when you die. Wonder what the afterlife is going to be like. Make that decision today for Christ. And there are pastors here, if you want to talk with them, they will do that with you. For the rest of you that have already made that decision, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you, as a Christian, to rededicate yourself to defending this gospel defending Jesus Christ, because it's getting tougher and tougher all the time, isn't it? Uh, I'll tell you two quick stories, and, and then I've got about two minutes left here, and I'm done. Um, 
Mike McHenry is our backup catcher with the Rockies. And I talked to Michael the other day, just did an interview prior to the game when he was starting. And he, uh, at the end, he said, yeah, uh, I said, hey, thanks for the time. He said, yeah, thank you. And as he said, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I thought, oh, that's really cool. So we get done, turn the recorder off, and I start talking to Michael. And, and he starts telling me about those two words, Jesus Christ. He said, as a professional athlete, and he said a lot of guys talked to him about this, guys on the Rockies and other teams, he's played for Pittsburgh, he said, when you start mentioning to the media the word God, they think that's pretty cool. That, that's kind of cool, you know, he's, he believes in God and, and all that kind of stuff, but he said, when you mention those two words, Jesus Christ, the whole thing changes. People back way off. And man, he is right. You know what he said at the end? He said, I'm going to keep saying it until someone tells me I can't or my life is gone and I can't say it anymore audibly. Um, with the 25th anniversary of the plane crash coming up Saturday, um, I've been interviewed by two local TV stations, and one of them has already done the story, and I went to their, their studio the other day and uh, did a little interview, and the, the host asked me, he said, what has been the difference for you? How have been able to pick your life back up? And I told him, I get my strength from my relationship with Jesus Christ. My becoming a Christian made all the difference for me in the world, and that's what I rely on now. And yesterday, last night, he sent me a, the, the clip, uh, the actual story on video on, on my computer, and I, I opened it up. You know what they did? They edited out Jesus Christ. But I'm going to be like Michael McHenry. I'm going to keep mentioning him. I can't do anything about that. And when I say defend the gospel and defend Jesus, you don't have to take this book and knock people over the head with it, but just defend him. If somebody asks you why you lived your life, tell them it's for Jesus Christ. Somebody asks you what the most important decision you ever made is, tell them it's a decision for Christ. They can, they can do what, what they want with it, but God wants you to defend this book and this gospel. And Jesus says, I want you to defend me as well. So when God asks you, hey, would you defend my son and defend the gospel, I hope your answer will be like Jesus was when he was talking to his father before he died. I will, God. I'll do it anyway. Thanks for letting me share you guys. God bless you. I've got to tell you right now that I need to slip out. I've got a game at two, so I'll have to. I know there's some people in the audience here that I know I'd love to talk to, but I've got to get rolling to a game. But thank you for letting me share. God bless all of you. We're so honored to, uh, to have had Jerry with us today. I told Jerry after the first service, it, it's crazy. I was supposed to be on that flight too. And um, it's just amazing that, that he was. But uh, he mentioned something in the first service. These are the words I want to close with this morning. You can have a seat if you want. You already know I'm long-winded. You can tell that. Um, and he said that uh, they, they were going in the air after just a few minutes, about 20 minutes into the flight. They heard a loud explosion. It sounded like a bomb went off in the plane. And everybody went into sheer panic. The plane started to drop pretty seriously, pretty quickly. And then the pilot came on the, uh, the airwaves or the radio. So there's been a major accident. We're in serious trouble. You need to prepare for the worst. That's kind of how he, he let the plane know what was going on. And I just wonder for us, if a message like this this morning or even the words in the scripture or something that's happened in your life, your own crash, I wonder if God isn't trying to be that pilot voice in your life right now. There's been a major accident. Sin is now part of our equation. It's going to get worse. We need to prepare for it. And I just love that Jerry said there's a way to prepare for it, and it's Christ. 
Whatever your crash is, whatever your difficult moment, difficult situation is in this moment, know there is a way to prepare for it. There's a way to get through it. There's a way to make it out alive. We said at the end of the first service, there are many ways to die. There's one way to live. And that life is Christ. And that life can begin right now. So if you're in the middle of something, if you've just made it out, if you're not exactly sure what we're talking about at all, come find me, come find Dave, come find one of the ministers. We'd love to talk to you about these things and pray them uh, over with you. So let me pray for you right now as I send you out. God, thank you so much for Jerry, for his story, for his conversion, for waking him up, awakening his soul to your son. Thanks for his voice and his ministry and his testimony. Help us to follow in his footsteps. Help us to come alive. Help us to realize that we're going to die, whether now or in 60 years from now, God, but that if we believe in Jesus, we will simply fall asleep for a few moments and be awakened again to live forever with you. Lord, whatever difficult things we're going through in this moment, would we see Jesus? Would we know Jesus? Would he recognize that he is right here with us and he is here to save us? He's here to help us make it through. No matter how scary, no matter how serious, He is here to save us and help us make it through. So help us to call out to him, to rely on him, and this week to defend and live for him. Bless us now as we go back home. Bless us as we live in our neighborhoods. Help us to change those places and Littleton as a whole. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have an amazing week. We'll see you again next Sunday.